Well, hello, everyone. It's We've Been Watching with David Stevenson and Claire Woodward. How are you, Claire? Good week viewing? Yeah, good. It's been a very coppery week, I think, on the box, hasn't it? Because everyone's so excited about Line of Duty. And the viewing figures were amazing, weren't they? They were incredible. I think uh, 9.6 million. So I don't know what everybody else was doing, but I think also the channels have suddenly woken up to the fact that Line of Duty was on and then programmed in a lot of other terrific crime stuff. So it's probably quite fitting that we've got somebody who knows something about police work and crime on the show, our first guest, in fact. Um, so, Peter Blexley, welcome. And good evening to you both, and thank you very much indeed for having me. If you're a TV viewer, you'll know Peter from Channel 4's Manhunt, a terrific series. If you're a fan of podcasts, which you probably are, you're listening to us, you'll know him from Manhunt, Finding Kevin Powell. We'll talk about that soon, but um, Peter's also an author and ex-undercover Scotland Yard detective. So who better really in terms of line of duty to ask Peter, what is a cheers for goodness sake? <laughs> <laughs> a covert human intelligence source or to use old money terms, an informant, a snout, a grass, a snitch. Oh, oh I like oh, those, grass. they're better. <laughs> I mean, it's the word intelligence that, um, that, that got me a little bit. I mean, I, I got the feeling that your, your typical informant is not blessed with a lot of intelligence or am I doing them down immediately, probably? Well, you see, I actually think CHIS should be covert human information source because information is exactly that. It's information. It only becomes intelligence when you apply some context to it. Um, so strictly speaking, I think it should have been um, information rather than intelligence source but of course I've long left the long since left the police and I'm not part of their acronym department so um, in that regard um, they call them what they will and Jeb Mercurio weaves them in unmercilessly and relentlessly um, in every line of dialogue he can doesn't he he does, he absolutely. It's more authentic, though, because I think it makes the plot harder to follow. I, I would rather someone be called a grass, frankly, than, than a cheers, because everyone was look, you know, um, looking it up on the internet and taking their eyes off the box. You know, I, did the police genuinely use all this slang now, or are we just being bamboozled? Oh, policing and so much of the public service is absolutely riddles, riddled with these acronyms and of course we hear them time after time uh in line of duty and sometimes i just let them go because of course it's a long time since i was in policing and so much of the terminology has changed but one that made me chuckle this week was tfc now i'm thinking that that stands for tactical firearms command right that's what i'm thinking i mean i, I haven't got time to look it up but being a keen cricketer as I am, a former cricketer, but a bit of a, a noise down at our local cricket club, TFC is an expression that people use that stands for thanks for coming. Right? <laughs> 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 and that's normally for some poor souls, forgive me just going a bit off message with cricket, right? But there's some poor guy or girl who spent all week looking forward to their game of cricket on a Saturday OK, they're going to have to pay 10, 11, 12 quid for their match fee that week. They're batting number five. The game turns out that they don't get a bat. They don't get a bowl. They still have to pay their subs. And the captain, as he collects the money, says, 
TFC, thanks for coming. <laughs> That's brilliant. It's a bit like being an extra, isn't it? Probably in line of duty and not getting a line or anything. And then the director saying, well, thanks for coming. Maybe it replies to them. There's quite a few extras in it. So, did And you, I you... love the extras. I spent quite a bit of time when, uh, when times were hard and I would earn a, a shilling however I could. I did quite a lot of background artist work, if you don't mind, all right? Oh, really? Not extras. You can see I'm part of that union still. Um, yeah, background artists. And I spent many, many long days hanging around on set for a minor little walk-on where if you blinked, you would have missed me. What was the best thing you did, Peter? Um, gosh, I did quite a few cop shows. Um, so, so, so I'd be in an office, you know, um, as a former cop and they, they, they knew I had suits, obviously. Um, but, but yeah, there were some good ones and did some feature films and all of that. But believe you me, they're long days. You've got to be very disciplined. You do get fed well. Um, and, and the pay is, you, know, you, you won't ever get rich doing it, but needs must at the time. And I, and I did enjoy it, met some lovely people. You've been pole dark, haven't you, David? Yes, I did pole dark. I had my own sort of, what was it, 16th century family at one point and a very large wood pail and we walked back and forth between this road and the mine and they kept shouting at me and I, my arm kept falling off and thinking, God, I think I'm going to ditch the children for one thing. <laughs> but the children were going, yes, we must keep going. We must keep going. I mean, no one was recording what we were saying. It was absolutely hilarious. And I dressed up as well for a great fire of London and had to rescue my mother from a burning building. But she didn't want to get out. So basically, our storyline was that we perished again. So... I've got a checkered sort of history as a background artist, really. And have you always been a fan of Line of Juicy, Peter? Yes, right from the off. Um, but I'm, I'm a huge Danny Mays fan. Um, oh, yes, he's and I've brilliant. got a confessed bit of an interest. Um, I worked with him on uh, a TV drama called Gorilla that was made for Sky um, and was written by John Ridley, the Oscar winner from 12 Years of a Slave. Oh, wow. Um, but Gorilla sadly tanked. Um, but but Danny was in it. I spent playing a cop, so I spent a lot of time with Danny, and he very graciously and kindly agreed to appear um, in a radio play that I was writing for Radio 4 at the time. And needless to say, Danny Mays just made my very average writing sound like it was Shakespeare. God, how wonderful that sounds. You're so multimedia, Peter. I can't, I can't get over it. Is there anything well, you haven't you turned know, your you, hand to so far? You, you know, you, you've done quite a bit. Yeah, four books, three plays for Radio 4. Um, obviously, you know, The Hunted TV show, which I did six series of, and various documentaries, and, of course, Rent-A-Gob, you know, commenting on crime and policing. Sadly, when bad things happen, my phone rings, and um, I'm asked to, to comment, and I've been doing that for a long time now. Yeah, absolutely. Do you get a bit fed up that you're having to sort of account for what police actions can be often? And I mean, you're you're their spokesman, as it were, aren't you? No, no, actually, I, I don't see my role as being their spokesman whatsoever. I see myself as being utterly independent. And, and when it is right to criticise, I do. And I've been very vocal about that over the years. So consequently, the amount of police officers that are in my telephone contacts list are fairly few. Um, I praise when I think it is deserved, 
and I criticise when I think they've got things not quite right. So what do you think of the first episode of this latest series of Line of Duty, Peter? I mean, did it hit you right between the eyes? Did it, you know, what did it do for you? Because we see that uh, things have changed somewhat, haven't they? The, 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 yeah. the, the old gang's broken up. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And there's Kate now investigating murders and... I loved it. There was so much to enjoy. And, and so what I, what I particularly loved, and of course this is this storyline is riddled in intrigue, is when the, the Detective Chief Inspector Davidson is taking the team off to arrest the suspect and suddenly she calls them off that task because she sees a suspect van and it's an armed robbery in progress and she's going to do that. Well, any detective that has spent any time doing surveillance or covert operations will tell you stories about where they've seen something happening right in front of them. And they have been faced with that dilemma, do we intervene or don't we? You imagine spending a career in surveillance. You see things happen time and time again. Do you break cover, arrest someone, and then show out, as we call it? Or do you stay in role, stay covert, and then just, as they do use a line of duty phrase, call it in? Mm. Did you So did you believe that moment that she could spot that from the corner of her eye? It was a great line from Adrian Dunbar, wasn't it? Um, you'd be battling to spot a pipe band at that speed. <laughs> yeah, it's all part of the delicious intrigue, isn't it? So I never overthink line of duty because what I'm normally doing on a Sunday night is rocking back in my sofa with a glass of red in my hand. I'm suspending all disbelief and trying to forget that I was ever in the police and just let the story tell him, take me, twist me, confuse me and lead me to the end of the series. Because that's very interesting because I thought it would, you know, some of the interview scenes might wind you up a bit and think, oh God, you know, you shouldn't have asked that question. That's absolutely ridiculous. TV interviewing the suspects does normally fall a bit short of the bar that I would set myself, I have to say. Um, but again, you know, these are dramas, so just let it go and in, enjoy it. I actually get irritated by more minor inconsequential stuff. For example, when DS Steve Arnott goes to that cafe and meets oh, yeah. the, uh, the lady that we've seen previously, the, the detective, um, who asks him if he wants to go on a date kind of thing. They're having a cup of coffee, aren't they, out of paper cups? Clearly, those cups are empty. Yes, I right? That too. right, and I see this time and time again, and it irritates me. I'm sure Costume have said, don't put anything in there, particularly coffee, because if it gets spilt, it's going to be expensive. You know, we've got to reset and do it all over again. And I'm sure probably directors say just, but they can't carry it off with an empty cup, like making as though it actually has a piping hot drink inside it. And that, that, that just irritates me. Put water in it so that 10 minutes later, your suit will be dry. Get costume to bring the hairdryer out. But you hold it differently and the cup reacts differently and moves differently. One of the things I noticed talking about the police interviews was the young man with Down syndrome who they did the interview with. And because Line of Duty is so involved and so many layered and so many characters, 
I'd kind of forgotten that he'd been in previous series. Yeah, yeah I had as well. Involved with the uh, with the body in the freezer. So this is this is why I find I love Line of Duty, but you really need your head screwed on and not too much red wine to watch it. And I'm just wondering, it's not the sort of thing you could come to as a new viewer without watching the rest of it, really, is it? I, I, I'm not so sure, you know, because if we look at where the viewing figures are at now, has everybody that tuned in on Sunday seen every episode of every preceding series or have, you know have they all caught up with it on iPlayer or does it continue to attract a new audience I think this series was brilliantly set up because you do get clues as to what may have gone before um but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say to anybody you know don't deal with it as a standalone series if you've never seen it before I would say still you know, enjoy the ride. Um, but it's a great point you raise. And have you got any theories about age then? Everybody else has. I bet you've got one, Peter. You've got the oh, theory on age, haven't you? Goodness me. I have in the past, you know, and is age a place? Is age an organisation? Is age actually a person? And so on and so forth. Um, once again, come on, Mr Mercurio, just... Take me where you want to take me, twist me, turn me, confuse me, upset me, make me happy and declare it when you want to declare it. Because I kind of think that it's become such a show now that it will only ever end when Jeb Mercurio decides he wants to end it. I mean, I was reassured the other week when I read that uh, what he did say at this launch, that he knows what the conclusion is. So that's that's heartwarming, isn't it? Otherwise, we could have been going on here for years, couldn't we? Well, well, there you go. And I'm sure he'll have another project lined up. Um, I should imagine he's very hot property when it comes to uh, commissioning editors these days. Is that an ending for the current series, David, or an, a series X years in the future? I think that is, is that, that is, that is this, yeah, well, you're right, absolutely. Well, he's got one more series, so we're going to be, we're always left on a cliffhanger. It's going to be a decent one this time, isn't it? One would imagine. The only, the only person I've, I've thought, oh, it can't be H, is Kate. So I'm going to say H is Kate. So there you go, cards on the table, boom. And just finally about Line of Duty, um, Steve Arnott, and even, you know, he's got that problem with his back or he's taking drugs and drinking. I mean, is that an interesting window into the pressures of police work do you think or is that something specific to line of duty well it's slightly different because in decades gone by most detectives in tv dramas drink too much whiskey um so now we've got um so now we've got a detective with a painkiller issue um although he, he seemed to be knocking them back with a, with a bottle of beer the other night Of course, Peter, uh, your your podcast, uh, Manhunt for Kevin Parle, is, is doing brilliantly. I mean, why did you decide to do a podcast on that particular issue? Well, um, when I left Hunted in February of 2019, I was deciding what my next major project would be. And my publisher said, yeah, you can write another book, but you've got to find the right subject material. Um, my previous two books have been about unsolved murders. One was a collection of unsolved murders. One, I focused specifically on one murder, 
and I spent a long time researching that case and I still had huge interest in it. Um, so then when I was thinking, right, okay, you know, I've, yes, you know, I've written plays for Radio 4, I've written books, I've done this, I've done that, but the harsh reality was I was best known for hunting pretend fugitives on a TV entertainment show. I'm not precious about that. It's just a fact of life. <laughs> Fine. But I wanted to use my skill set and my experience as a lifetime investigator. My contacts that I've got, former cops, law enforcement, commercial security sector, all of that kind of thing. And what am I best known for? Hunting pretend fugitives. So I thought, right, let's let me hunt a real fugitive. And they do not come any more wanted than six foot five Liverpudlian, Mr. Kevin Parl, who is wanted in connection with two separate and ghastly murders, both committed in Liverpool. Um, the shooting dead of 16 year old boy, a kid, a child, Liam Kelly in 2004, and the shooting dead of a 22 year old mother of three young children, Lucy Hargreaves in 2005. Paul has been on the run for over 16 years. He's not convicted of these crimes. He is very much wanted for them. He's on the National Crime Agency Most Wanted list. And for the last 23 months, I have dedicated my life to trying to find Kevin Powell. And I will. How close do you think you're getting? I think if it hadn't been for COVID restrictions, he'd have been handcuffed this time last year. Wow. Um, and, and some other matters, uh, which is unfortunate. But, you know, all the advantages are with him. He's got people wrapped around him that are involved in serious and organised crime. He doesn't have to obey the law of any land that he might be in. Um, I do, and always would, of course. Um, I believe they have considerable resources that far outweigh mine. But these matters will simply make his capture all the more satisfying when it happens. Um, our podcast, Manhunt Finding Kevin Powell, it's on BBC Sounds. Uh, 12 episodes are up there. It's been download, downloaded over 3 million times, won an award. It will be back. The BBC have commissioned further episodes. My investigation is going full tilt every day. I've got plenty of material. And as soon as I can bring it back, we will. And my book, which is called Manhunt, which was published um, towards the end of last year, has been another useful tool in encouraging people to come forward and tell me what they know. Many people have devoured both the book and the podcast because they're very different things. And I would ask people to do exactly that, please, and help raise awareness of Paul and the crimes he's wanted for, because through doing that, we are shrinking the world for him. And we are gonna squeeze the globe so tightly that is six foot five ginger ed pops up somewhere and law enforcement can slap the handcuffs on god i'm impressed i have been listening to the the version the, the book version which is compelling absolutely the whole case is but what will happen when you get to the point where you think he's ripe for arrest i mean how will that let's not give too much away i suppose but will you simply you're not simply going to stride in yourself and make an arrest are you Absolutely not. He's six foot five and he's 20 years younger than me. So if it came to a street fight, there'd only be one winner and it wouldn't be me. Um, no, I've got a pretty decent relationship with Merseyside Police. I'm also in contact with the National Crime Agency. 
and law enforcement outside of the UK. Um, so it, it's their job. I don't have a warrant card. I don't have a gun. I don't have any handcuffs. That would be their job. It's tough for you to hand it over, though, wouldn't it? Because you've worked so hard on this. No, 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 no. This is this is not about me. In fact, it's not about Kevin Powell. This is about Liam and Lucy, the victims. Mm -hmm. um, and last month, February, I renamed the hunt as the People's Hunt for Kevin Powell because so many people, literally thousands of people, are helping me by retweeting when I tweet something, sharing something on Facebook or other social media platforms, because I'm across many of them, by telling me what they know, by handing out flyers and posters. If anybody wants flyers or posters, just contact me through those platforms or via my website, peterblexley.com, and I'll stick some in the post to you. I'll send you the electronic versions. A lady rang me yesterday who I'd sent the electronic versions to. She printed off in her own business 500 copies of the flyers and has distributed them to all her clients. That's how we're shrinking the world. That's how he's going to get caught. Do you think we'll get to a point where he might give himself up? Is there any likelihood of that? Or is he, is he not like that? Is he, What's his personality like? I think that's extremely unlikely. He's a smart guy. Many people have told me, and we've gone back many years to interview people from his childhood, for example. And unanimously, people have said, he's a smart guy. He's a clever guy. He often felt that he was the brightest person in the room. And on many occasions, actually was. Um, so he's no shrinking violet, you know, he has yeah. quite a high opinion of himself and I begrudgingly have to give him some kind of credit for successfully staying on the run for over 16 years. You know, you can't be a fool and, and be that successful as a fugitive. Um, but he apparently many, many years ago, there was a famous true crime book called Cocky. Um, that was written about a notorious Liverpool villain called Curtis Warren. And when that book came out, Kevin Powell told some people that I've spoken to that one day he wanted a book written about him. Well, Kevin, you've <laughs> achieved your ambition, but of course the book I've written about him is essentially the longest wanted poster written in the history of mankind. And I really don't think it's the kind of tome he would have expected or wanted. What an ego. That's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. No, not such cruel crimes as well. A teenager and a mum. You know, yeah. what does that say about the guy? He would do anything. You know. Well, he's unconvicted, so let me reinforce that. But these are <laughs> ghastly, ghastly crimes. And mm. he needs to stand in a court of law and answer the allegations made against him. That's kind of the fabric of our society, really. This is, about, this is about truth over lies and right over wrong and trying to achieve some justice. If we lived in a totally lawless society where people could do what they want and then not face the consequences, we'd all be going to hell in a handcart. And this is why everyone's still so fascinated by police dramas, isn't it? You know, ultimately, we want justice to happen. So that's, you know, we all want a happy ending like that, don't we? You know, that's why police drama is so compelling and why there are so many police people on television. You know, we all want justice. We all want to, you know, we all want good things to happen and the baddies to get arrested and, 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 and dealt with. 
absolutely that sense of justice cuts to our very being um and you know even the liverpool where i've been so many times recently a city that i'm deeply in love with and its people um people kind of um you know there's there's many people that are born and raised in that city and told you don't talk to the authorities you don't grass lucy's murder in particular crossed the line and, and, and many people have told me what they know, what they can, and, and are actively trying to help because it was just so ghastly, as admitted by Merseyside police. I think one senior investigating officer described it as a as the worst crime the city's ever seen, um, which is quite saying something. Uh, well, let's move on to. Uh, it's probably a good point to talk about the detectives. Uh, and fighting organised crime, which was set in Manchester. I mean, I found this, well, a lot of the crime shows this week, I found it difficult to watch. This one was particularly difficult because it had the sort of definition, I thought, of a complete thug, this fellow called Paris Bostock, who eventually went down. But what's it like with sort of coming face to face with these sort of guys? I mean, he looked one of the most intimidating people in the sort of arrest hall there that they would come across. He reminded me very much of a notorious crook in Peckham way back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was a uniform cop there. And um, it, it was the, the behaviour, the language, the character was absolutely identical. And without wishing to um, incriminate me and my former colleagues too much, let me just say, back in those days, where arrested people were brought into was called a charge room and not a custody suite. And there was no CCTV. It hadn't been invented. And there was no such thing as whistleblowing. And that gentleman that appeared in The Detectives may not have had quite so many opportunities to be as gobby as he was. Now, I'm not condoning any of what went on back in the day. And we've got better police and a better society for all the progress that has been made. Believe you me, unequivocally, without doubt but by crikey in a week or a couple of weeks when people have gone on protests and they have daubed ACAB on the side of police vans in other words all coppers are bastards when ACAB hashtag has been trending look at those police officers the restraint they showed, that was the incredible. brilliance of their detective work, their determination to see it through. And they gathered all the evidence that led to Bostock and his cronies being convicted. Really? You tell me now, protesters, that all coppers are bastards. You know, I thought about that as well. I mean, I must admit it was the bravery of people standing around Bostock in that, what you call the custody suite, and not knowing really what to do. He was he was like a, a firework, well, a, a, some, a, an explosive set to go off, wasn't he? I mean, there was no control over him, was there at all? None at all. I mean, that was a man utterly out of control, completely, you know, a, a danger to humanity. Fortunately, he got convicted and sent to prison. But I think he only got nine years in the end. So, um, you know, in the not too distant future, he will be back on the streets of Greater Manchester in all likelihood. And that police service may well have to deal with him again. 
if he comes out unreformed. God, that's depressing, isn't it? I mean, the other thing I found depressing is it seemed endemic in the generations. I mean, the child that was recorded on the uh, 999 call, who was saying, uh, you know, uh, someone asked, are they going to kill daddy? And the, the child says he had a gun, though, a revolver, a six-shooter. Any child that can sort of relay that amount of information about a firearm, what sort of world are we living in? Yeah, and whilst I thought the detectives was brilliant on, on many, many levels, I thought the storytelling was first class. I thought the detectives were the epitome of professionalism, and it was a really beautifully crafted piece of TV. What it failed to address is the big issue here. And that is, of course, that all that violence stems from the fact that the drugs industry is illegal. This is this is a, a byproduct of the war on drugs. Mm. And this is the nonsense and the violence that living in a world where drugs are prohibited, this is what it leads to. For 50 years, we've fought a war on drugs that simply cannot and will not ever be won. So around and around and around the circle goes and the violence and the loss of life and the wasting of money. What we actually need is- the Portuguese is route, Peter. Should we take a look at what's happening in Portugal where things have largely been legalized? Well, yes, they have had some successes, but for me, that's a very unsatisfactory halfway house. I would like to see the complete legalization of all drugs and so that the industry is then licensed and regulated on an intergovernmental global scale. That is the only way we are going to end the folly of this ridiculous, unwinnable war. It's interesting because politically it's always been a, a jump too far, hasn't it? I mean, it's the political will that's missing at the moment, isn't it, really? Sadly, it is, but the drug law reform movement has unstoppable momentum. It really does. And many, many battles are being won along the way. Um, unfortunately, we have many elements of the mainstream media that perpetuate the fear around drugs. Now, please don't think that I condone drug taking in any way, shape or form. I really don't. And I was far too familiar with drugs at certain stages in my life. And that, that's a matter of nonsense and, and regret, of course. I don't want people taking drugs. But the simple fact is, this is a supply and demand industry. And the demand will never go away. So politicians, some are, but broadly politicians, need to wake up to the very learned voices in the drug law reform movement who are putting forward very credible solutions as to how this could be structured and so this nonsense war could be ended billions could be raised in tax revenue millions of lives could be saved prisons populations could be dramatically reduced and essentially in the long term with the right education starting at primary school children will be taught away from drugs like they are smoking these days. And that other excellent show, um, 24 Hours in Police Custody, has a special next week, I know we've touched on, about uh, DIY guns linked to the drug trade as well. Um, but it, there was an episode, you caught an episode this week as well, didn't you, Peter? 
Oh, yes, I did, where um, uh, a man was eventually convicted of a number of very serious sex offences, and I think he was sentenced to 18 years, including rape. Um, and it was another fabulous example of dogged detective work. And of course, it's different in this generation to my generation, because so much is, revolves around DNA, the science of which simply hadn't been developed when I was a detective. You know, we were hoping for a fingerprint or maybe a hair. Now it is so, so different. Uh, and it was a wonderful example, yet again, of the patience and the determination of those brilliant detectives, bringing about justice for victims. Because for me, it's all about victims. You've heard me talking about Liam and Lucian. Thank you for that opportunity. For me, it's all about victims, victim-focused investigations, um, because we don't have a victim's law in this country, and we should have. It's a scandal that we don't have victims' rights enshrined on the statute book in law. Absolutely scandalous. So when I see those detectives so victim-focused and getting some justice for them, it's really important. And, I, and, and I'll just tell you a, a quick anecdote, if I may. There's a, a person who's become a, a, a close friend of mine in recent years, and they were the victim of serious sexual assault when they were a child. And this person told me, uh, uh, said a, a line to me, which will simply never go away. They said, I, for many, many years, was a victim of child sexual abuse. But when I saw justice handed down, I became a survivor. <laughs> mm. And I think that's powerful. And that line has never, and will never leave me. Absolutely. I mean, that brings us nicely on to the um, BBC thing, Football's Greatest Scandal this week, doesn't it? About the sort of sexual abuse scandals in football, which was, I found it incredibly affecting seeing big men cry as if they were little boys all over again and reliving the experiences they'd had. Um, and I thought it was just, just incredible to get men to speak like that, I thought was incredibly affecting. But how could that man have got away with it? Well, it wasn't just, I, you'll forgive me, I'm not going to mention their names, even though I know them. I will not use the names of the offenders, because some of them, bizarrely, might actually have access to this, and they might get off on hearing their names. I will not speak their names. What I will speak about is that, yet again, brilliant bit of television and for me there are two words that are really applicable to that program first of all bravery bravery on a heroic scale of the victims once again the victims and it really chimed with me because with you know they're all heroes they're, they're all just utterly heroic my football team that I have supported all my life, Queen's Park Rangers, played in, in the higher echelons of, of football. So um, David White and Paul Stewart, I watched them on many occasions playing against QPR. I was less familiar with Andy Woodward and, and Steve Walters, but they are all just 
utterly heroic. So, so for me, there is that word, bravery. And at the other end of the scale is cowardice. The cowardice of the offenders to prey on children, to threaten them, to frighten them, to abuse them so abominably stood in stark contrast to those utterly heroic men who had to harbour those secrets, who suffered all that anguish, who tried to self-medicate and who would have blamed any of them. Absolutely. And then they finally came forward. Andy Woodward should have the highest accolade that could possibly be, be bestowed on a human being because he broke the dam. And mm. that man is an absolute hero, as they all are, all those men who came forward. And in particular with him, you know, his sister married his abuser. How appalling does that get? You know, it certainly shows you how the families are all involved in the abuse, you know, because there were people's mums saying, you know, I will never forgive myself for not knowing what went on. But you see how... The abusers, they're, they're smart, aren't they, Peter? You know, they know people's minds. They know how to flatter and how to um, how to be nice to people and, and to never be suspected. My wife, my wife, who's sitting downstairs, did over 30 years in the Metropolitan Police. Uh, the bulk of that service as a detective and the bulk of that service investigating child sexual abuse. She is an absolute authority on the subject. And of course, at the end of the day, she would come home to me. And if she wanted to offload, although she was very good at compartmentalizing her life, but on the occasions that she did want to offload, I, as her husband, of course, was there to listen. And she has told me for many, many years on a number of occasions about how these predatory paedophiles put themselves into positions where they can connect and abuse children. They are verminous predators and they manipulate and put themselves into those positions where they can carry out their abominable acts. It was an incredible documentary. I think there are two, I think it ran out over the week, didn't it, altogether, so. Um, yeah, I've only seen the first one, but I will be catching up with the others this weekend. No, extraordinary documentary and the bravery of doing testimony in front of the camera, knowing that millions are going to watch um, adds another dimension to it. I wondered if we should end on an optimistic note, um, the Kate Garraway documentary, which um, Finding Derek, which I thought it was going to be um, much different to what it was. I found it very optimistic that um, he was very gradually starting to find some normality. It's obviously a very long journey, but he was, they were talking about in terms of dragging his way out and that was slightly happening, wasn't it? I thought so. I, I'm, I've had the great pleasure of, of meeting Kate on occasions when I've gone on GMB to comment on crime or policing and she's utterly delightful to, to be frank to, to a fault she's a really lovely lady and a friend of mine has had a similar not quite as serious experience at the hands of this 
wretched virus. And of course, I wish Derek all the very best. I, he's far from out of the woods yet, and there's an awful long, long way to go. But it also serves as a salutary reminder, doesn't it, that as restrictions start to be lifted next week, and many millions of us have had our first vaccine and a couple of million have had their second, this is not a green light to go hugging and thinking that it's over, it's beaten, we can all now go and do as we bloody well like. I thought the timing was great in that regard, that it came out the week before restrictions are lifted. Absolutely. And I just hope that we as a nation are mature and sensible and care for one another to do what we're told. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, Katie's absolutely wonderful. I think she was just, you know, it showed how the family were all involved. Now, her beautiful children, Billy and Darcy, you know, they were so... You could see what great parents they have. You know, they were so caring and they were so thoughtful. And, you know, little moments like um, when when Billy said, oh, mum, you're all right at Lego, but dad's so much better. And he was sort of showing his dad the Millennium Falcon he built without him. You just think, you know, this is building characters um, in the most unfortunate way. And it was great the way that Kate spoke to other people that had been affected. You know, it wasn't just a sort of celebrity thing. Um, so she mixed being a journalist with being a wife and a mum as well. And I thought it was incredibly well done. I mean, for me, you know, I, I know Derek professionally. He was my therapist. And just I found it very upsetting to see this, this good face I'd seen across a therapy room for so many hours in so much pain and anguish. You know, it, was, it made it so, so much human. And, you know, whatever you think of Derek Draper, he's helped a lot of people like me. He is a good person. And, you know, he, he deserves all this love, you know, and he's obviously getting lots of it too. I mean, it's good. There is, I mean, a thread through a lot of what we've spoken about uh, in this podcast is bravery, really. A lot of bravery from police, a lot of bravery in that documentary from Kate uh, and from Derek. I mean, it's an interesting theme that we've seen right across the shows this week, isn't it? Well, I think people, yeah. people need it now. You know, people need you know, to feel brave sometimes, you know, they need some leaders, they need some direction in this really horrible time. And, you know, if these people showing bravery, it's fantastic, you know, and to do it on TV, my goodness, you know, particularly with the football thing, to see these big lads cry, I, I, I found it absolutely extraordinary. And at that point, I think we might leave it. You're absolutely right, Claire. Uh, thank you very much, Peter Blexley, for oh, all your contributions. Absolutely you. fantastic. Compelling stuff as ever. And um, I can't recommend enough the, well, it's a narration, isn't it, on um, Spotify and then the, the podcast on BBC Sound, isn't it? Yeah, Manhunt, Finding Kevin Powell is available on BBC Sounds and wherever else you might get your podcast from. And please, my book, Manhunt, um, is available on Amazon and via other online retail outlets. And um, please spread the word. Kevin Powell must be found. Kevin Powell will be found. Great. Thank you, Peter. And we've been watching and we shall return next time. Won't we, Claire? Oh, we, I think we shall. It'll be good. <laughs>